Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to join us. I'm the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional. Those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. The early effects of the pandemic on the workforce saw many businesses close. Many others took extreme measures to survive, including downsizing, cutting pay, and reducing or eliminating certain benefits. Our guests today believe that getting a better handle on your people costs and benefits can help organizations be less draconian in their approach to surviving the ongoing pandemic. We are pleased to have with us today Peter Newhouse. Peter joined Unilever in September 2010 as Global Head of Reward and a member of the Unilever HR leadership team. Having previously worked as a senior executive at Ford in North America and as group head of remuneration at Standard Chartered Bank in London. Having graduated with a law degree, Peter started his career in rewards in 1980 when he joined the American consulting company Organization Resources Counselors Incorporated, as well as developing the reward consultancy service of MMK, specialists in executive and incentive compensation. Peter has also run his own reward consulting business, Peter Newhouse and Co. We also have with us today Ken Charman. He is the CEO of UFlex Reward, a cutting-edge HR and rewards data platform that collates all costs to do with employees, salary, pension, bonus, shares, etc., into one real-time platform. The technology was built for Unilever, underpinned by agile methodology, and has now been rolled out across Unilever globally. Ken has been involved in major enterprise software projects since 1987, specifically in financial consolidation and reporting systems, and has built high-performance teams in IT startups that were acquired by Oracle, SAP, IBM, and SunGuard. Peter and Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much, Jim. Yeah, likewise, Jim. It's great to be here. Absolutely. My pleasure. Uh, Before we get started, I thought maybe we could just very basically define total rewards. Is that just a benefits package or is it more than that? Well, let me have a crack at that, Ken. So, um, Jim, you know, total reward, we like to think of it as being all aspects of compensation, including benefits, but definitely not limited to benefits. It should also include all cash payments, incentive payments, long term incentives like share schemes. But it really ought to go beyond that because the entire employment proposition is something which is part of the package. So Unilever, for example, big international company, lots of opportunity for mobility, big footprint, lots of different experiences on offer. So much more than just benefits. Great. Thank you for clarifying that. Many organizations, you know, as I mentioned earlier, cut employees and pay to survive the early stages of the pandemic. As time goes on, you know, especially with the chaos here in the States, with some states being open, some states being closed, and they're kind of crossing paths as some get uh, more expansive in what they are allowing and others get more restrictive. Uh, so there's still many companies out there that are struggling either still from the initial the initial issues that happened or are starting to struggle now and they'll likely rely on HR to cut more employees. Do you think that's the best way for an organization to stay afloat? Mm, shall I have a go at that one then, Peter? My Please turn. do. Yeah, you're yeah, still, yeah, you're a sweet spot there. It is, yeah. And I've been doing a lot of work on this, Jim, um, in uh, the last few months, uh, answering every question that comes our way for data on people cost from Unilever. And and let's um, let's salute Unilever for its achievements so far. 
uh, in that it hasn't had to put people on part-time working, hasn't furloughed anybody, hasn't taken government money anywhere in the world. It's keeping things going, even though um, it's taken some big hits to the business. And and, and the reason, uh, I think one of the reasons Unilever has been so successful at that is because we can supply full detail for every aspect of employees' reward down to the individual employee. Uh, and, and as Peter said, total, total reward is everything. So um, uh, your, your salary, your comp is about, I don't know, about 70% of the reward spend in a big company like Unilever, which leaves 30% um, in all those other categories. And because they're spread around different systems, it's really difficult to tie it back to an individual. Uh, so um, if you want to look for many different ways to make a saving, um, then you've got to go into all of those different systems to find out um, what you're spending on individuals or a group of individuals. It becomes too laborious. It becomes too slow. Uh, so in the end, comp gets used as a proxy um, and uh, it gets prorated across all the other aspects, which actually vary a lot. And it just becomes it becomes so imprecise. It becomes so onerous uh, to look into twenty different ways to save one percent of the people cost budget. That really, what companies are forced to do is if they've got to save, if they say they've got to save twenty percent of people cost, they're, they're under pressure to to do that quickly. They'll say they'll they they will have to lose people. It's 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 so much simpler to organize losing 20% of people than it is to find those savings through a hundred different other mechanisms and then go through all the negotiations that you might have to do to achieve your savings that way. And, and this is the, the, the big fear, um, if this pandemic uh, turns out to be something where we make even faster progress on vaccines and, and good treatments, we could we could see a very a very strong bounce back in, in which you might end up regretting losing talented, experienced, highly trained people because that was the only way you could respond to the pressure to cut structural costs. To me, it's a data problem. Uh, I'm not I'm not by training an HR or reward problem like Peter is, but to me, this is a data problem. And, and when I talk to people in HR, uh, I really feel for them because. I know they want to save people's jobs uh, and they want to keep the company fit and strong for recovery, uh, but they struggle to get their hands on that data because it is so fragmented uh, and distributed across so many different systems. So the answer to your question is, it would be great to uh, be more creative, but to be more creative, you've got to have the data. It's, It's a data issue. And Ken, in many ways, the problem goes even deeper than that, doesn't it? Because uh, often headcount becomes the proxy for cost. And so the idea is that all headcount has some kind of equal cost, which yes. of it doesn't. And yes. the more information we've got to fine tune that, the better. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that is, uh, I have seen the edicts go out, cut heads, and um, all heads aren't the same, as we know. There's a there's a big spectrum in in cost between the different grades and different and ac- across the reward hierarchy. And if you cut the heads that are easy to cut, quite often it's you know quite often let's face it, it's, it's like blue collar people or factory workers or guards or transport people who who kept things going, uh, and they're ahead. Uh, but a senior executive or a manager is one head as well, and and they. 
um, have a higher cost uh, and um, they're harder to um, to uh, to cut um, in in terms of redundancy. So you can say cut heads and you don't get the savings that you thought you were going to get. So you have to go back and have a second bite. Once again, it's a data issue. You, you've got to you've got to have a more sophisticated command of data if you're going to do this kind of stuff effectively. Those are great answers. Um, I think you answered every single question I have for you today. <laughs> you guys have been doing this for a while, huh? <laughs> well, we're, just, we're just getting into this now, you know? <laughs> yes. Well, we'll back up a little bit and start getting into the details. Um, I think uh, one of the important questions is what degree do you think, you know, if you could put a rough percentage on it, uh, that most organizations really don't understand their people costs? Well, I mean, in my view, reward is probably the biggest aspect of people cost anyway. And uh, in my experience, most organizations don't really have a very good command of how they spend that money. So as an example, when I arrived at Unilever uh, some 10 years ago, you know, in the back of the annual report, it tells you uh, as an investor that Unilever spends 6.6 billion euros a year on pay. And you think, wow, that's a lot of money. I wonder... Um, exactly where does it go what you know what is it spent on but that information really wasn't available and that's why we built the system in the first place to be able to uh, get a better grip on where that expenditure was being targeted and then of course the second aspect is well what, what do people think about that where's the feedback mechanism that says um, if you're receiving a package uh, which aspects of it do you value and which aspects do you not value because if we're giving you things that you don't value you can be pretty sure that we're wasting quite a lot of money on pay that people don't really appreciate so with a feedback mechanism with more information we can make pay more relevant if we can make it more relevant then it's more engaging if it's more engaging you're more likely to be motivated if you're more motivated you're more likely to enjoy the employment experience and that's really the path that we we took uh, 10 years ago in building this system? You know, I'm not a benefits expert. Uh, it's In fact, it's one of the areas that I have uh, the least experience. But my understanding is that historically, say maybe 10 years ago, the goal of having a wide sweeping and all-inclusive benefits package was that that's what it took to get people in the door, was you had to have a little bit of something for everybody. Um, and and my also understanding is also that there wasn't a lot of personalization back then. So in many ways, many of these organizations made these problems for themselves when they created these sweeping packages that have dozens and dozens of benefits. And then you combine that with what's often considered to be poor benefit communication. Uh, so employees don't even understand their benefits, what they have. They might not even know they have certain benefits or if they do, how to use them. Uh, it seems like a lot of a lot of this work was put into a recruiting effort and then kind of forgotten about. Would you say that's accurate? Well, I'd like to hear what Ken has got to say about this. But before that, let me just sort of say, I think that's absolutely right. And and the real difficulty is that we're not very good at retiring aspects of the package. You're taking them off the shelf. You know, we're very good at putting things on the shelf. But once they're on the shelf, it's really hard to withdraw them. Uh, and therefore, you've got a big marginal cost in providing things that people don't really like. But Ken, again, this is something that you've taken a very close look at. Yes. So it, you won't be surprised to hear me mention that word data again, um, but I'm going to. 
Um, yeah, Peter's right. In fact, um, uh, an expression from advertising comes to mind when we talk about this, which was the the, the, the famous phrase of, you know, um, uh, only 50% of my advertising works, but I'm not sure what, which 50% it is. Um, and, and although with reward, it's not as big as 50%, there is certainly a percentage of reward that a company, a big global company uh, pays to employees which by individual employee, they don't value. Uh, 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 so you're spending money on something which um, the employee doesn't value, but it's, it's a real cost to you. And, and, and if you've got a, a spend like, let's say Unilever has, $6 billion a year, um, it's quite important that you spend that efficiently and effectively. So uh, we, we once again turn that on into a, 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 a data question, which is how do we find out with precision um, who values what reward? And to do that, you've really got to personalize it. So actually, the, the, the way we build that in is that you can see your reward in real time and you can you can inform us in a real-time survey what your opinion of, of that aspect of reward is. And if we then link that up to ways in which we can um, tailor reward to the individual, then we can ensure the company isn't spending money on benefits that people don't want you know the classic of course is you've got a husband and wife who've both got um uh, health benefits uh, but you only need one uh, then that's a significant uh, saving for the company or it's a significant amount of money that uh, uh, that somebody can have and, and spend on other some other form of reward but you've got to have a system which allows people to make those elections uh, give you those opinions uh, so that you can respond to it more precisely. Um, so it, it's it's about data uh, uh, once again. Let's talk a little bit about personalization. I mean, it seems like the solution here is to get a system that allows you to personalize everybody's benefits and rewards. Uh, so they're just using what they need. They're not using what they don't need. What kinds of savings do you think we're talking about? What percentage would you put on that? If a company, say, cleverly and efficiently rolled out a personalization system, uh, what would the difference be? Yeah, the, the way I look at this, Jim, is, is really in terms of wastage. It's a bit like, uh, you know, water in pipes. There's always going to be some leakage of water that doesn't kind of make it to the tap or doesn't make it to the system. And reward is very similar to that. So there's a lot of throughput. But some of that throughput, because the nature of the proposition is one size fits all, um, there's going to be wastage. So I think what we're really talking about is the relevance of the proposition to the individual. And personalization allows you to make that proposition relevant. And that relevance then is more engaging. The greater engagement goes to the motivation, as I mentioned earlier. You know, So I think it's a question of wastage. Now, if you imagine a company as big as we are, Clearly, we spend a lot. Uh, and I think if you were to think in terms of a 15% opportunity to really make that spend more efficient, cut out wastage, you're looking at uh, the best part of a billion euros uh, a year. And so this is a significant opportunity uh, because it isn't just about um, you know cutting out unnecessary spend. Yeah, I, I agree with Peter on that. It, it, it's not just a cost saving. It, another way of looking at it is that's a, a billion euros of goodwill or, or discretionary effort or motivation that you're you're not getting a return on. 
Um, so at the moment, uh, with cost pressures like you have uh, in this economic shock, you might be wanting to convert that into savings. But in good times, uh, when you're looking to retain and attract people and increase productivity, uh, you want reward to play its role to the maximum in, in increasing output, creativity, productivity across the business. Um, and, and if it's not valued, then obviously it's not doing that. And, and Jim, something that Ken and I talk about are sort of bumps in the road of your life. You know, so uh, we all have bumps in our road. You know, some of those bumps are unexpected. Some of those bumps are intentional. But when you hit one of these uh, points in your in your life cycle, uh, you need to make changes. You, know, you decide to start a family, for example, and suddenly your whole profile of expenditure is, is different to the way that it was before. Uh, you reach a certain point in your life, you can afford to take more risks. You know, so... Uh, that ability to actually change the way that you get paid to accommodate those bumps in the road, those changes in your life cycle, those changes in your lifestyle, make a lot of difference. Because, of course, those are the moments when you tend to put your head up above the work that you're doing on a day-to-day basis and reflect upon whether you're in the right place at the right time, earning the right amount of money. And that's the kind of time that you look for another, uh, another job. Uh, and if we really want to keep people engaged and, and we want most people happy to stay with a good employer for an extended period. So if we can make the package more relevant and more flexible to get them over those bumps in the road, then actually we're doing everybody a big favor. Yeah, I completely agree with that. When when my wife and I were uh, pregnant, we worked at separate jobs and the number one deciding factor for where we would continue to work was uh, parental benefits, you know, and she actually ended up leaving her, her job and moving over to my, my job because they had better benefits, you know, and it really was more than pay more than commission. She's in sales. Um, that was the deciding factor. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about change because it seems like, well, I guess before we get there, the question is, what was stopping people from implementing a, a better system? Um, I think a couple of things. One is that the technology simply didn't exist. And so, you know, the starting point was inadequate systems, a lot of manual processing, a love of Excel spreadsheets, <laughs> and a very kind of patchwork quilt of bits and pieces. And I think Ken can speak a lot to that. I think the the second obstacle is the mentality. You know, we don't really have a good approach to making change happen. And therefore, these systems and reward in particular kind of runs on and on without uh, fundamental reform. I think you bring those two things together. There's a pent up need for change. Technology is the vehicle that enables that. And we now have the capability to do a lot more than we ever could before. Would you agree with that, Ken? I would, Peter. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, it, I exactly agree with that. And and let's let's also add to that that it, well, you you mentioned it. There's an there's an orthodoxy to reward which people all kind of tune into and they expect to see. You expect to see a grading system. You expect to see um, um, comparative job titles. You then expect there to be salary bands within the grade. So actually, there's a really uh, familiar framework uh, to reward, um, uh, which is, which I think uh, is based around the limitations of of systems uh, which were in place when when 
complex reward structures or complex organizations were growing you know it was originally analog piece of paper and and uh, and um, uh, manual calculation and then we've gone into a, a sort of first phase of digital but we still needed you know tables in databases actually the technology exists now to throw that all away uh, and we can be much more free and flexible with uh, doing personal deals and personal arrangements uh, temporary arrangements with people which which get into a kind of hyper uh, personalization um, which uh, big organizations are keen to adopt because they see that smaller organizations smaller more dynamic let's say startups are taking a much more flexible approach to reward for people who join in a small company you can you know who they are you can really press their buttons personally in a big organization it's your it's the it's the information hierarchy that stops you doing that but like peter says that that that's a a a view based on obsolete technology we can we can have unstructured data in a reward system now and we can match what happens in startups culturally we need to get our heads around how the organization um, communicates that to employees the employees will want that but of course some employees might want to still want to stay in that old-fashioned secure system then they can have that too but managing that kind of much more freer almost it sounds like chaotic environment um, is something that we can bring order to with modern technology um, uh, and it's something that Unilever's experimenting with and pushing forward on um, uh, 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 and, and that's really interesting because um, it's what the employees want uh, and it, it's organisations which, um, which are almost standing in the way of it when they don't need to. Yeah, Jim, let me give you an example. I mean, in our system, we obviously have a rules-based system, so we can uh, we can replicate every aspect of reward through a series of rules. Um, but ultimately, we can also uh, measure exceptions, and, and every organization is going to have exceptions because exceptions are the sort of lubricant that makes the machine work. Too much lubricant, machine doesn't work. Too little lubricant, machine doesn't work. So it's useful to know just how many exceptions you're making. And any exception really is, if you like, a rule of one. Uh, it's something that we've decided to do for whatever reason for an individual. But if you extrapolate that out and you sort of say, well, why can't we have more rules of one? As long as we have a framework which, which, which really delivers equity for people so that there's a fairness in the way that we approach pay and there's a way of comparing packages across the entire uh, range of things that we do, then there's no reason why we shouldn't embrace a lot more customization, personalization, and that simply means more complexity. And technology is built for complexity. It allows us to examine that complexity in a lot more detail. And that's really the, the route for the future, in my view. Yeah, I, I think that, that if you can get your head around that, um, uh, I'll just repeat something that Peter said there. It's like, everybody's an exception. So you can make everybody go in the straight jacket of a grading hierarchy uh, and we can keep the grading hierarchy going. Or you can just say everybody is a rule of one. Everybody's an exception. But as long as we are cataloging that and we've got a record of that, then actually what happens is when we do queries or searches or we interrogate the database and we do comparisons or we, we 
we can we can create groups or sets of people based on um, uh, a profile query, let's say, then what you get back almost becomes a grading system on the fly, yeah? Because those people have got those similarities, then we can look across and see what they've been, they are being rewarded with, and we can say, well, there you are. That is a group of people, and there's a maximum, there's a minimum, there's a midpoint, then there is a system there. And if we see anomalies, then we can start to take action to level that out. Um, so this, this, and this is, of course, an explosive subject these days, because at the same time as we're introducing this kind of uh, free range approach, we're also all very concerned um, and very active in ensuring that we have um, the highest levels of pay equity. Uh, there isn't bias and discrimination in the system. So once again, you, you, you need you, to be able to have a, 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 an approach to data which says any combination of factors um, that I throw against um, the reward database in terms of how I group people, I want to get back um, information on how that group of people then varies in, in the way we pay them, the way we reward them, so that I can then uh, take positive action uh, to make sure that we live up to our rhetoric uh, in terms of equal opportunity and equal pay and, and the things that we all want to make much more progress on. Uh, and, and wouldn't it be great if we could push that boundary out one step further and cross-reference against the value generated for the organisation by the individual? Because, of course, this has always been the sort of goal, is to assess the value that the, the organisation derives from work and reward accordingly. But what we've really built are two quite separate ways of approaching this within HR. On the one hand, we look at talent and development and learning. And on the other hand, we look at reward. And both of these things are not heavily integrated with each other. And here's an opportunity to do it. Uh, we've started from the reward side in order to be able to understand in a lot more detail how we pay people. But once we take the framework and reassess how that should be used to generate fairness, then we can do the cross-referencing across to value generated and have a much more sophisticated value exchange between the individual and the organization with more equity at its heart. Yeah, and, and and if you want to change the organization, then that's kind of what we're talking about there is, um, I know this is like listening to the brains trust, isn't it? But what we're talking about there is a historical view of where we are. But if you really want to change the organization, then let's say there's a promotion, there's a, uh, I know, a, a, a pay rise, there's a new position being created, Actually, what you have to do then is use the reward system to give data on the current state of reward across that profile or that group of people before the decision is taken to make a change. Yeah. So if they can then see uh, the spectrum of reward um, as paid to those, that group of people in that position uh, and they can see that there is a skew, uh, then it will have an anchoring effect. It will it will affect the way they take a decision and hopefully encourage them to do something which is making progress and more positive. Um, but to give you know like a pay equity audit, which gives the company a a report at the end of the year saying how we're doing on on looking after the various different profiles of people, it's too late. You need that information when you're taking a decision. Therefore, you need a real time reward database. It's interesting uh, when you mentioned that. The technology just wasn't there, say, 10 years ago. 
Um, part of what is interesting about today is that if the pandemic had happened 10 years ago, we would all be essentially doomed because there wasn't the video conferencing software. There was some, but it was nascent. There wasn't, there wasn't as many chat tools that were as integrated with like email, like Microsoft Teams and things like that. It just wouldn't be possible for everybody to go home. And, and many people wouldn't have had what level of technology they had at home, like personal computers and home offices and stuff set up to do this, this work from home. And it seems similarly, the pandemic has created a situation where many rewards and benefits that used to be relevant now that everyone's home or many people are home isn't relevant. And a lot of organizations are going to have to really grapple what they're offering, how they're offering it, and what that's going to look like going forward. Jim, I I think that's such a good point. And and if I could build on it, um, if you've got, Unilever's got 150 odd thousand uh, employees, you know, about 65,000 of them have got like an S2 login, you know, they've got a Unilever ID, email, whatever. We can be in instant contact with all of those people. And there are lots of other companies who've got that technology. Now we face a systemic crisis, or not in the case of Unilever, but it could be another company which has been really hit hard, you know, an airline or or somebody in hospitality who's been really hit hard. And the management is stuck with employment contracts and reward contracts, which makes it really difficult to manoeuvre in order to buy a year or 18 months uh, of survival time for the business. The technology actually does exist for you to present every single person's reward to them and then involve them in the decision-making on how can we produce a temporary saving, yeah, which helps the business survive, helps your job. Um, We put contracts and agreements to one side because this is a real crisis you can actually ask the workforce um if you've if you've got that technology you've got to be able to give them their reward you've got to be able to give them a modeling environment in which maybe you've given them some proposals you know maybe we do without bonus or maybe we you know we all agree to take four months holiday um for the next two years and this is what it looks like you know before and after so you have to give them what it looks like for them and what the new emergency measure would look like and then give them the chance to vote and be involved that technology exists but and i have i have heard of some examples of that kind of thing taking place the reason we're not doing it isn't a limitation of technology it's imagination yeah it, it's it's having the courage um uh, 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 and um and imagination to take that approach you're right 10 years ago we couldn't have um but we've got not just the collaboration technology now we've got the ability to uh ask our, our colleagues to share in these big decisions um and i think that we would get a really responsible um, uh, uh, and creative response back from them. Um, I was thinking about that because it's such an interesting point that Ken's making there. And the word that popped into my head alongside courage to do that is confidence. Um, I think a lot of organizations lack the confidence to be able to be radical with pay. And they also lack the confidence to trust their own employees to make good judgments about pay. 
I think, unfortunately, the idea behind pay is that we all ought to be grateful for what we're paid and we should accept it without question. And we don't really, as an employer, want to hear what you've got to say about it. We don't really care because we can't really do anything with your feedback. But at the heart of all of this is a desire to get feedback from employees, to have the confidence in them that says that their opinions are valuable. And I think this is something where Unilever has a great strength because, after all, we are a consumer products company and reward is nothing but a, a consumable. So all the people that get paid consume reward. And we wouldn't dream of putting a product on the shelf without getting customer feedback and actually taking notice of it. So why would we spend so much money internally on pay without really getting any feedback or trusting it? It's an excellent question. It would seem highly illogical to do that. I think we're getting a little bit close to the end of our time here. So I just want to ask one more question, which is, uh, how would you recommend that uh, we, a lot of our listeners are HR departments of one or people that have a very small department? How would you recommend them getting started with something like this? Or how would they even begin to take a look at what they have and, and where they might go with it? Um, well, I was kind of waiting for Ken to have a go at that, but go on, you start, and I'll finish it off. Don't, don't, don't mistake silence for um, lack lack of ideas. Uh, it's just getting them in the right order before I start machine gunning them. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, there there isn't there isn't a um, a, a scale factor in this. So a small organization, a startup or a dynamic organization needs to be doing this as creatively and as well controlled as a big global multinational. Um, and, and, and you can, you know, one of the, I have to say that Unilever's got this, this view of the world, which is if it does good things, it wants other people to, to benefit too. It's, it's, it's benefit for the, for the economy and society, then you have to find a way to, to spread that. Um, so there isn't a size limitation to to using this data. Um, and, and in fact, when we when we designed it, we even took it right down to, well, a single person who's like contingent labor these days, a contractor or somebody who's working in multiple um, organizations almost needs a system of their own. Uh, so um, in terms of the way we we designed this system for Unilever, it's like uh, it, it's 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 multi-tenant, it's cloud. Actually, everybody's in the same environment, uh, but they're 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 securely separated. Um, I, I would say, uh, um, but that there there is a really good video of how the system works, and you can look at that and then start using that as a you know, as a way to prompt your own thoughts on how you might like to organize, how you might like to organize this. Um, uh, and that's available on that, that Uflex reward website. It is, it isn't, it's designed to spark people's imaginations. Uh, and it was originally developed for the Unilever executive board because they're not experts on reward, but they, they, they need to know what's going on. And it would help anybody to uh, understand some of the, um, you know, the, the, the concepts that Peter and I have been um, uh, throwing around this afternoon. That would be a good starting place. Yeah, and I'd sort of add a little bit to that, which is, you know, we're, we're all under cost pressure. Every organisation uh, has thin resources spread thinly. We're all expected to do more with less. 
And the only way you can do more with less is by doing things differently. And the best way to do things differently is to have the data that you need to make decent decisions available to you. You know, so in a way, the system, the data provides you with a foundation on which you can build something securely. And without that foundation, you're just really floundering around with hard work. Um, so I think in order to rise above uh, you know, the, the difficulty of resource, you have to have the information. Once you've got the information and you've got a bit of a vision of where you want to go, then you have the opportunity to put more sensible things in place. And in my view, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah, it's that data thing again. I agree. Well, that, that's actually a really good suggestion. Um, I will likely include a link to that video if you would be happy to send it over to me uh, on in the description. Um, Peter, Ken, I really appreciate you guys taking the time today. It's been a real pleasure, Jim. Thank you very much for having us. Yes, indeed. Yeah, thanks for the invite. And it, it, it's it's fun. Yeah, we talk about this thing because we, we're passionate about it. We enjoy it, don't we, Ken? I mean, you know, we really do think this is a you know, potentially game-changing way of doing things better. I think that comes across. Um, and it's my pleasure. Well, thank you. Listeners, we're always interested in suggestions you might have for what HR Works should cover next. Please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at HR Works Podcast. With any thoughts or concerns you have about the podcast in general, Thank you for listening. This is Jim Davis with HR Works.